Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. In this week's episode, I reconnect with a college classmate who is doing exciting work in the world of sales. Cece Aparo shares some great hacks with us as we think about emailing and communications with our constituencies. Later in the episode, she puts on her donor and trustee hat and lets us know what excites her on the receiving end of development strategy. Cece has dedicated her career to building, optimizing, and training top sales organizations across the United States. Starting her careers in sales and marketing, Cece quickly identified the benchmarks for success in a winning sales program. Cece spent five years in venture capital where she was responsible for working with portfolio companies post-investment on their sales and go-to market strategy. Cece is Vice President of Corporate Training at Hoffman, working with corporate clients around the world to master our technique and increase pipeline and revenue. With a strong understanding of the sales process and a passion for the art and science of sales, Cece delivers training that is tactical, engaging, and meaningful. Cece attended Trinity College in Hartford and is on the Board of Trustees at Providence Country Day School. She lives in Rhode Island with her husband and two daughters. Now let's get started. Cece, welcome to the debrief. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. I am too. And for the listeners to know, Cece and I went to college together. Sure did. Cece comes from a sales background, but is also an involved alum, an involved parent at an independent school. So I was just really excited to bring her on to talk about all of those perspectives. And you and I had talked CC and we settled on emailing and email hacks. Yeah. I feel like I sit at this weird intersection of sales and development. I actually worked for a company that sold technology into the development and higher education space. I'm a trustee at my high school. And like you said, I'm now For the first time ever this year, a parent at an independent school, there's always opportunity to improve. The rules of email are forever changing. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's one of the hardest elements of our job in sales and your job in development. So I'm excited for this. Yes. And I think that's the perennial question is we're all trying to get into the door and we're trying to get into the door in strategic ways in efficient ways. And for a lot of us, that first step is through email. Actually, I'll start there. Do you think that's, that is a good first step or should it be phone? Should it be something else? It's a really good question. Listen, I think email is the easiest place to start. You said efficient and I, we have this belief. I work for a sales consulting firm called Hoffman. We spend a lot of time internally talking about the idea of being effective versus being efficient. Because sometimes I think what is effective is actually the least efficient path. That said, when it comes to email, I see across a lot of the different um, roles that I've had, email is obviously the easiest way for us to get in front of someone because it's the easiest contact information for us to get. Cell phone numbers aren't always readily available. We don't always have clean data inside of our own databases. Uh, maybe that person has left a company, gone somewhere else to have their personal Usually email. they have, by the way. Yeah, they totally, totally. <laughs> totally. So to have their personal email, like I do think that is a great place to start this journey. So let's start in focusing this portion of the conversation on mass mailing. So okay. 
this could be alumni relations, this could be annual fund, this could be lots of different ways that we're trying to get in touch with a large audience. What are the most important things that those emails should all have? I'm going to be totally honest. Talk about efficiency versus effectiveness. Mm -hmm. I don't love the idea of mass emailing. We all know conversion rates on mass emails are so low. Response rates are so low. But I do think that there are things that you can do at the end of the day. You got to get an announcement out there or you've got to get an ask out there or an invitation out there. You have to do it. So there are some things that I always say you should take into consideration when you're sending any type of mass email. First and foremost, remember that it is going to be read on a person's cell phone. Statistically, we know that most people, right? Most people read emails on their cell phone. And especially in the COVID, post-COVID, weird COVID world that we're all living in, we're walking around our houses, walking around our offices, wearing masks, staring at our cell phones. So, (laughs) but here's like the counterintuitive part. Most people write emails from their computer. So what you just wrote on a 13 inch screen in landscape mode is being consumed on like a four inch screen in portrait mode. So see a problem with that? Cause I do. So the reality we have to remember, and if it has multiple scrolls, you've already lost me and you've lost everyone else who's on the receiving end of it. Everything should fit on a screen. I always say you want to include a definitive close. I, I got a little preview of this. Kat was very kind and sent me some questions, but one of her questions was around, should everything include an ask? Yes. It doesn't mean it's an ask for money, but it should include some definitive action item. And I think that people at the end of the day want to know what to do with the email that's sitting in front of them like, because so- they have three choices. Actually, you really have two choices. You like can respond to it or you can delete it. So make it so that they have to engage by asking them to do something. So does that mean a save the date is not a good idea? Because a save the date doesn't have an action like an RSVP function. Totally. But why not send a save the date with like, hey, if you want to RSVP early, here's a link to do so. Like give them the option of doing something with it. There's a rule we talk a lot about in sales um, and a lot of the trainings that uh, we do around the rule of commitment, which states the longer someone's involved in a process, the higher the likelihood it is, they want to see that process resolved. So by getting them involved in the process, getting them to RSVP early or getting them to like, hey, have a button that says add this to your calendar, something to get them engaged will increase the likelihood of them actually coming to the event itself or showing up or RSVPing or maybe donating down the line. Some kind of an action. Are there other things beyond an action, an actionable way to engage in a good email that we should be thinking about? This is a weird one, but when you're looking at the email, people don't know this, but spam filters actually are looking at the shape of your emails. So you want to make sure that the, and actually a large percentage of what a spam filter is filtering for 50% is a subject line, which we can get into in a couple moments here, Mm -hmm. but 40% of a spam filter is actually looking at the shape of the email itself. So you want to make sure that you're looking for a movable right-hand margin, that margin, you shouldn't go margin to margin the whole way down the email, because then that looks like a brick of text coming at you, which one makes it really hard for the user to read, but it also spam filters like love that. And they're sucking it up that Mm -hmm. like email that I know we all love. That's like paragraph, paragraph, bullet points, paragraph. Spam folders are actually looking for that. So that's uh, that idea of the shape of your email is so important. 
So what's a good shape? What's a shape that the spam filters won't find? Oh, you have to come to the Hoffman training to learn that. Um, you want your email. <laughs> let me put it this way. You want your email. We, uh, yeah, I'll say it because so many people <laughs> do a whole training on prospecting and the technique we teach is called why you, why you now, but a lot of people call it the F shaped email class because you want your emails to look like a capital letter F. So your eye is being drawn down the screen itself. Like that right-hand margin should move where every, every subsequent sentence is getting shorter and shorter. And that if you're putting an action item in there, we'll draw them to that close, which is exactly what you want. Well, thanks for sharing that little tidbit. <laughs> and, and we'll talk more later. You know, if people are enjoying this, which I know they are because CC is so engaging, there are ways to do more with her. So we'll go to that in a minute. In terms of subject lines. Yes. What do we do? Subject lines are so important. Like I said, 50% of a spam filter is looking at a subject line. However, the days of a subject line being designed to inspire curiosity are actually gone. So what's, yeah, I know, catch the face. I, I know, <laughs> I know, I hear you. The subject line, you want it to be a cliff note of the email itself. And in fact, the longer the subject line and the more specific it is, the higher the likelihood it's actually going to get through a spam filter. So subject lines that are short and pithy, like quick update, touching base, checking in, your name and their name, or like your school name and their name, it's actually going right to the spam filter. It's not even getting in their inbox and being read. So the longer- so no more the, ellipsis? No, what's that? No, you, no, you, <laughs> you like literally- I always say you want the subject line to be so long that it falls off the screen of your smartphone so that when you're looking at your email client, it has an like ellipsis on it because it's so long that the subject line can't be finished. So okay. that's what you want. I mean, I'm going to try this. I have not done try that. it and report back and look at your conversion rates. I hate to say track open rates on emails. I always say like open rates mean nothing, but if we're talking about mass emails, open rates mean everything. So look at your open rates and look at your response rates on the one-off ones where you're setting this out. What are the common mistakes you see now other than now we know a mistake is a short subject line. What are other ones? I'm going to talk specifically, not just on email, but about the development world that I see from my perspective. I think yes. one of the biggest yes. mistakes that I see institutions make is that they assume the person on the receiving end knows what's going on at that school. Like I laugh and my daughters right now are going to a school that I did not attend and they talk about events to me as a new parent, like I'm supposed to know what those events are. Maybe they're annual events that they're hosting, but they'll like call events by name. And I'm like, what, what are they talking about? What is this? Mm -hmm. So make sure that you are providing context and even to your own alum. I think that that is so important too, because we forget. I mean, my high school friends laugh at me. I'm always like, remember on the second Tuesday in September of our senior year when X, Y, and Z happened. And they're <laughs> like, no, we remember nothing. So people do forget lives move on like things that you assume that they know they don't. So I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes I see made. Mm -hmm. And I think that also directly applies to campaigns or day of giving I always am saying to the school um, where I sit on the board, like, make sure you tell them where the money's going. Like, what is this being used for? How are they going to be making a difference in the lives of teachers and students and the, like, and the school itself? That is so 
interesting to a prospective donor and into to someone who maybe just wants to re-engage with the school. So don't assume we know anything. We know nothing. That's another mistake I see people make. I think we've all been trained to be that less is more. And it's sounding like in this context, that's just not the best strategy. I think you have to be, what's the word? I always economic with your words, but make sure the words that you're using are going to explain what the ultimate goal is. So I'm not saying like word vomit on a page or give tons of information. Remember this has to fit on the screen of a smartphone, but people want to know, I think, especially a younger generation. I'm I'll say my age, I'm 32. um, And I feel like I am part of a generation where we are more philanthropic, like we're more philanthropically minded than people give us credit for, but we maybe more curious too. And more curious. Absolutely. And not, I think our parents' generation, it was kind of like, don't ask too many questions. Don't give the illusion that you don't understand something. And my favorite thing to say in every context is like, I don't understand that. What do you mean by that? And that's ultimately what gets people to talk. So I just went on a tangent there, but. Well, no, you, I mean, you anticipated my next question, which is how the millennial audience is different because, you know, our age group, some of us are now parents. Some of us are getting more senior in our career. So this is a really important audience. And you just told us curiosity is something that's different, but what are other things you think that our age group is looking for or that could hook us? Two things. I I feel like our generation is, we're the Netflix generation. We like things that are like short and episodic. Mm -hmm. So, but consistent, like, I love knowing that Great British Bake Off, the next episode is going to come out on Friday at 9am Eastern time. Like, I think we We love consistency, we love brevity, and we love things that are episodic. So if you're sitting there thinking like, I want to be brief, but I have a lot to say to my audience, like that's okay. Say it in three different emails and be consistent on that drumbeat of the email because people like that. I'll give credit where credit's due, the head of development um, where I'm on the board He has done an incredible job writing a monthly newsletter specific to every graduating year. And it is, I know, I know a lot of the content is the same, uh, particularly when it comes to like updates on the school, but Mm -hmm. he does a really good job of at least calling out one thing in the first line of the email that's specific to that year. Maybe it's highlighting an alum from the class. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's talking about a teacher that we all have that was part of our advisory group. But that comes out every, the first Friday of every month and everyone knows to look for it. And I think that we like enjoyed the episodic nature of it. It's short, it's sweet, kind of a quick highlight reel, but it is consistent. And Mm -hmm. that's a really big piece of, I think, how our generation likes to be engaged with. And the personalization. Do you think timing or day of the week is an important thing to consider when doing mass outreach? I haven't seen any statistics that say one day of the week is better than the other on email. On the phone, that's a different story. But on email, all days are equal. Okay. I will say, I think there is definitely something to be said for that 10 minute window at the top of every hour, like five minutes before, five minutes after the top of every hour. We see that sending emails in that time actually increases your engagement rates and response rates on those emails because that's when people are in and out of meetings or waiting for their next Zoom to start. And they're looking at their phones, checking their email. So that 
855 to 905, 955 to 1005, 1055 to 1105, and so on. We go throughout the working hours of the day, but that is really the best time to send an email as of late. Okay. The whole mass mailing thing, it's it's not my expertise. I just learned a ton. The <laughs> work that I do is way more personalized. I'm reaching out to individuals, asking them for meetings, you know, sending proposals for, for gift asks. So let's, let's move into a little more of that category in terms of engagement and personalization. Sounds good. You let us know that every email should have an ask. And I know that you feel the same way about one-to-one. You had given me a really great example of you were asked for a meeting with just a meeting with no specified request. And can you just tell us that story again? Oh yeah. So I was asked for a meeting and sitting in the meeting and I so felt like yes. I, I said yes to the meeting and I'm sitting in the meeting. This, this actually also happened to my husband at his school sitting in the meeting. And he was like, why am I here? Like, it felt like a catch-up session. And you know, I, we all know the elephant in the room. You want to ask me for money. So make the ask. And if it's not for money, make the ask for something else. Do you want my time? Do you want me to be a speaker on a panel? Do you want me to meet with students um, and look at their resumes? Like make an ask, but have a, have a purpose of the meeting. Don't just burn people's time sitting there catching up because it feels really inauthentic and people are busy. I, I think like that's the really big thing is you have to remember that people are busy. And so if you're sitting there burning their time just to like shoot the shin and try and be their friend so that you can ask them for something down the line, it feels a little inauthentic and disingenuous to me. And apparently same to my husband. So let me ask you this, since you know the lingo, do you think that meeting was an attempt at cultivation? And so they just thought let's connect and cultivate. And that was the intention? I think so. I think that was the intent of the meeting, but it was for me, the meeting where like my eyes were really open was the second meeting. First one, fine. But the second meeting when I was like, okay, what, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And I am a firm believer of you can't ask people for money until you have engaged with them elsewhere. Like they have to be engaged in your community. So I love alternative asks. I like, I'm always talking about this. I'm on an engagement committee at my school about talking about like, what other things could we ask people for? And how can we get people re-engaged back on campus, back on Zoom with the rest of the campus? But you got to ask something. Having multiple cultivation meetings where you're just trying to um, become their friend, like that doesn't feel good to anybody. So something that I often say is, I'd like to meet with you to talk about what inspires your giving and learn more about your family's philanthropy. I love that. Like I I do, I love that because that is, that has a point that has an agenda of not like, let's, you know what, I'm going to be in town. We'd love to grab lunch, hear a little bit about what's going on with you. Like, what? No. Right. Okay. So the example I just shared, people feel free to take that. You know, that's something that I've used a lot and have gotten great responses with. Are there hacks that you have in terms of getting responses? On one-to-one? Yeah. You have to close. I mean, my hack is to close and my hack is to close open-endedly early in your outreach. So an open-ended close for those of you, I mean, most people know this. It's who, what, where, when, why, or how. That's the six ways you can ask an open-ended close. And 
early on in your outreach by closing open-endedly, what you're doing is you're requiring the person on the receiving end to talk versus asking something that just requires a yes or a no back. So early on in your outreach, you want to get them to talk and engage with you. So that's a good hack and good way to do it. But ultimately talking about something that's going on in their life through your research. Maybe you saw that they were recently promoted. Maybe you saw that they just joined a board somewhere else, whatever it is that you could, maybe you saw that their company just launched a new product. Like, Hey, this is so cool. Would love to hear about it, but would also love to learn. I loved your line cap, like about what inspires, how did you phrase it? What inspires your giving? What inspires your giving and your connection to school X? Like Mm -hmm. who wouldn't respond to that? So the more specific you can make it about things, events, as I like to call them that are going on in their world, the higher the engagement is going to be. I want to talk about some examples because in my email outreach, you know, I ask them for the meeting. I say when I state my intent. And then I usually end it with, would you be open to this question mark? Is that an example of an open close? No, that would be a close ended question. Cause then they would say, would you be open to it? The answer is no, but Ken, I'm sure they're saying yes. How about something like, what's your availability for us to talk for 30 minutes? So I can learn a little bit more about what inspires your giving on Wednesday, the 28th and look, just look and see people are going to say like, oh, well, Wednesday the 28th doesn't work for me, but maybe I can do something the following week. Like it requires them to talk. Whereas a yes or no, that's all they have to type back. And it's, they've outboxed you and they don't have to deal with you anymore. So So another thing that I used to say was, (laughs) please let me know how you'd like to proceed. It sounds like that's that's not no, a <laughs> no. At the end of the day, you're human and talking to a human. That's not how we talk to our friends. Okay. This is another mistake people make. You have to remember at the end of the day, your emails that you're sending and the communication and outreach that you're doing, you're not competing with other organizations that are buying for that person's dollars and cents. The end of the day, you are competing with that person's universe. That includes their friends, their family, their colleagues, their clients. They're doctors, they're kids. Like it's a massive universe of people. And we, that unsolicited email, we fall at the bottom of it. So we have to do ourselves a certain, like we have to put ourselves at the top of the list by one, talking about things that people care about, which is themselves. And two, talking to them like a human. Mm -hmm. Would you like to proceed? Like what's your availability for us to get coffee next week? That's like how I talk to the people I know. It's funny that that feels counterintuitive. Like, I think we're afraid to be too familiar. We're afraid to be too assumptive. It's a weird dynamic because you're afraid Mm -hmm. to be too familiar, afraid to be too assumptive or direct. Um, I hear a lot of people say that. But then you also, like, to my point, you go in and you sit down and you want to like shoot the shit and become this person's friend. And that is like, you're talking like it's too forced Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you and I, as humans, we float in and out. I'm going to like go on a quick psychology break, but we float in and out of these things called social paradigms. And the idea is that we meet so many people over the course of our life that it is unlikely that we're going to build a relationship from scratch with everyone we meet. So when we meet someone, if someone is wearing a recognizable uniform to us and speaking a recognizable language, our brain actually just shuts off and we start behaving accordingly. And even though in development, you're not in a true sales role, there is no like paradigm for a development officer and a potential donor. 
So it kind of falls right into the buyer seller paradigm. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. there are a lot of preconceived notions and bad behavior that's baked into that paradigm. The motivation of a salesperson in that paradigm is to be liked. And the motivation of a buyer in that paradigm is to not reveal intent. So when you go to that meeting and your motivation is to build rapport and their motivation is to not engage or like get through this as quickly and politely as they can, it's just a recipe for disaster. So you have to change the dynamic and you have to change the paradigm. So what do we change it to? In the psychology, there's, you have options. There's a lot of different ones. I think the one that we like the most at Hoffman is teacher student. And I actually think, Kat, your question of, I'd love to learn about your, um, what inspires your giving. That is a student, a question a student asks. The dynamic isn't for you to go in and be a teacher. It's for you to go and be a student and learn about that individual, learn about what motivates them, learn about what inspires them, learn about how they feel connected to your organization. Like that's your job is to be a student and be genuinely curious and allow them to talk. I was listening to a couple of your episodes um, in preparation for this. I can't remember who the individual was. It was a man, I believe his name was Sam. One of the things he said is at the end of the day, people want to be heard. And Mm -hmm. I think that is just the God honest truth. People want to be heard. And so by being a student and allowing them to be a teacher, you give them the runway to be heard. And then you can tie that back to initiatives later at the second meeting. So you're not just continuing to shoot the shit. Right. I've had colleagues who have gotten so nervous about preparing for a meeting, anticipating every question that may come their way. And I've said, I do very minimal preparation because I want to go in open. I don't want to make assumptions and I shouldn't be talking very much. (laughs) No, absolutely. Absolutely. At some point, the paradigm has to shift at Mm -hmm. some point. They have to become the student so they can ask about what's going on at your institution. At some point you have to become the teacher, but that shouldn't be the goal of the first meeting. And the goal of the first meeting shouldn't be to build rapport. I always say rapport is not a goal. It's a result. It's a result of like great work and you delivering on the things that you said you were going to do. So, yeah. Another thing I want to mention before I forget in this context is I've heard a lot of people say that they want. The, the intention for a first meeting is to provide, quote, provide an update on the school. No, not, not right. And I think we, a lot of people, that's like a comfortable thing that I'm going to come and tell you, but, but I've always said, no, no, no. I'm glad you think the same thing, but I think that's a mistake that we fall into in these outreach emails. Totally. Now, in terms of following up with people, because I feel like I'm the follow-up queen. I'm always calling, nudging. That's a dance, but do you have any rules of thumb around it? How many times it should happen? How long you should wait? What the tenor of that communication is? So I think this falls into two categories. There's reaching out or following up with people when you've never engaged with them and following up with people after you've engaged with them. Mm -hmm. I'm going to answer it in like the first of, hey, I'm doing one-to-one outreach. How many times should I reach out to that person before I give up? Yes. Statistically in the world of sales, it takes between five to eight touches to get someone to reply back to you. I don't think it's necessarily the same in your world, but you're human reaching out to a human. So there are elements of this that are definitely the same. I will quickly interject. I, I do find that number to be true on the alumni side. On the parent side, it is way fewer. It's one or two touches because they're way more invested 
absolutely. And honestly, as a parent, I can see that because when you get an email from your kid's school, you're like, oh shit, what, what do they do now? Yeah. But I the swear, alums like, will ignore. So many times here. Alums ignore, yeah. ignore, 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 ignore. So yeah. five to eight sounds about right. Especially yeah. one to one. Think about how you communicate with people that you know versus how you do outreach, like on the donor side. What I see most people do, because we don't want to be annoying, you might send an email on a Monday and then you might wait a week instead of follow up. Then you might wait two weeks and then you might wait a month. Like the time in between your touches gets further and further apart. Mm -hmm. And that's the opposite of what you should do. The time between your touches as touches go on should actually get closer and closer together. This is how we communicate with people that we know. Think about it this way. Uh, my mom does this. My mom might call me on a Monday. If I don't respond to her, she'll call me again Tuesday. If I don't respond to her Tuesday afternoon, she might send me a text like, you good? And if I don't respond to that, that night, like I'll get another text like, you okay? Like what's going on? Or she'll call me again. Like the time in between the touches is getting closer and closer and closer together. And that's how you should think about it. Interesting. Okay. So think about it on the major gift side. Think about the like gifts that you have brought in. They always accelerate. Like when you're working with an individual, it kind of picks up momentum until <laughs> they actually write a check. And ones that don't come in, those decelerate to their death. So I'd like to inspire that level of urgency, even in my outreach. Hmm. Our job isn't to make people say yes or no. It's about inspiring urgency where none exists. So you can actually inspire urgency by getting those touches to, I call it the half-life strategy, bring them closer and closer and closer together. Cut the time in between your touches in half. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try this. Sorry. It's a lot. I know. And in terms of inciting urgency, what are some ways that, that you find that that works well? It's so hard in the world of sales. You can, there are different leverage uh, levers that you can pull Mm -hmm. discounting timing, whatever. You don't have that luxury in your world. So urgency has to be around making your outreach about something that that person is, that is front and center for them. Like I love, if I got an email from our alma mater that was like, Hey CC, I saw that your company recently launched a new website and a new program. And like, I think it's so fascinating what you're doing. I would love to jump on a call with you to learn a little bit about it. And also to like learn about your experience at Trinity and see what is relevant to, or like what inspires your giving I, that email I would respond to. Why wouldn't I respond to that email? But an email that's like, Hey, CC, I know it's been some time, uh, but uh, I'd love to fill you in on what's going on here. Lots of change on this school at this school, obviously it would be great to catch up. Are you free? I'm, I, I'm deleting every time. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about your training program before we wrap up with the signature question? Yes. We, so I work with this company called Hoffman. It was founded by a gentleman named Jeff Hoffman. Jeff and I teach people techniques so that they can build those levels of urgency at every stage of the funnel. So we have three core programs that we teach. One is called Start the Deal, which is all about a lot of the things we talked about today. How do you get someone you don't know to call you back and answer your emails? And then what do you say in those first 30 seconds so you can get through awkward breakers and into the meat of why you're calling? 
We have a program that is called Work the Deal, which is all about how do you structure conversation so you can shift that paradigm. And we do a big deep dive on the paradigm itself. And then we have a program called Close the Deal, which is all about how do you introduce the exchange and to go back to what I was saying earlier, introduce those levels of commitment that we need people to engage in early on in the process so that you can kind of race to the close and get things over the finish line and move deals or opportunities forward in your pipeline. We deliver them virtually. Everything's live. It's a ton of fun. We also do a free weekly webinar called Tuesdays with Hoffman, where we talk about sales strategies. And you know, as someone who dabbles in the development world, as well as in the sales world, I love everything that we teach and everything we talk about. It works in sales. It works in development, works in mm-hmm. your dating life. It's, so it's really like, it is just so applicable to every aspect of your life. I'm a huge fan of everything I've learned from Hoffman and maybe one day I'll be lucky enough to take a training. <laughs> we would love that. We would love it. So Cece, you know, you have so many hats that you wear in your life. What is it that you know for sure? What I do know for sure is this. I am amazed by people who work in the world of development It is the ultimate sales job. And I am actually really inspired when I hear about folks that are using the uh, magic of sales for real good, not evil. And I think it is thankless work. I think that you are the unsung heroes of institutions. What I know for sure is that without development, all of these organizations, schools, communities that we hold near and dear to our heart would not be here that would not be open and available for the broader community so that is what I know for sure you people rock and we should give you more thanks and shine a spotlight on all of the incredible work that you're doing that is what I know for sure thank you so much maybe that'll get some more people to take our meetings too (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know about you, but I just learned a lot that I didn't know. I think it really goes to show that we have a lot to learn and a lot to gain from the corporate perspective in thinking about what works in different fields and industries. The long subject line I had never heard before, the F-shaped email I'm going to keep in mind, Keeping things simple and taking a step back for context for donors. I love the idea of sending three emails in a series instead of packing everything into one. And Cece's idea around follow-up, that it should increase, that we should half all of our follow-up. I've never thought about it that way and it makes a ton of sense and I'm going to try it. I hope you try some of her techniques. I also hope you consider learning more about Hoffman. I've attended some of the Tuesdays with Hoffman that are free and really enjoyed sitting in on the webinars. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you try these and if they work. Good luck with your end of year outreach and I hope everyone has success getting in front of who they want and moving conversations forward with a strategy, intentionality, and a great plan to follow.